With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. This is going to be fun because this is a kind of an old story in law, but a new twist on it. We're going to go out to Arizona, another great Young Voices contributor. She's a professor of law out at the University of Arizona. That'd be the Wildcats, not that other one that does Sun Devil type stuff. Jane Bambauer, how are you, ma'am? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, feels like Arizona out here. It's a nice hot day out here on the East Coast for a change of pace. Summer's sneaking up on us. We're doing well, ma'am. Uh, interesting thing. You've been writing in the Washington Post. Um, about letting police access Google location data can help solve crimes. Now, we've seen this pop up a couple of times. We've seen it with the in-home technology. We've seen it with data location, things like that. You've kind of got a new twist on it here. Uh, I'll just let set it up and let you tell the story. But are we going to really let Google start solving crimes? And is that a good idea? And give two examples, Professor. Give two examples. Okay. Uh, well, so I don't think it's I wouldn't say that generally in all applications, it's a good idea to have law enforcement knocking on the door at Google or Apple or any other tech company and getting whatever they want. This case, the reason I decided to write about it uh, is because it's an inversion of the usual way that police investigate crimes and that, uh, and that matters a good deal. So let me tell you what happened in this case and, and then I can explain why I think it's so different from uh, the other style of, of data access that police usually get. So in this case, uh, a man walked into a bank. He, uh, he shielded his face using his smartphone uh, from the, the, the security cameras. So the police knew that he used an Android device, which wound up being helpful. Uh, he went into a bank, he robbed it, uh, got away. Um, and the police tried to figure out who he was, the sort of ordinary ways, um, you know, asking witnesses and trying to follow up leads and that didn't go anywhere. So then they applied for what's, what's become known as a geofence warrant. They went to a magistrate judge. They said, okay, we know that a robbery took place at this location at approximately this time. We would like Google to share with us some uh, data, location data on anyone who had an Android phone that was uh, within, uh, you know, 100, uh, I forget if it's 100 meters of the bank uh, during this one hour time period. And so then Google gave them some data. Um, using that data without any names on it, the police uh, figured out that there were a, a few, three phones that might potentially be the robber. And they asked for an additional hour's worth of, of location data of those three devices. Uh, and then once they got that data, they were, they were able to home in on one phone that matched the other facts that they knew about the crime. And so then they asked Google to identify that one phone users. And that led to the arrest and eventual prosecution of, of, this, of, of this defendant, Chatry. Um, so the court had to decide whether that process that I just described 
was a violation of the Fourth Amendment, whether it you know, complied with, whether there needed to be a warrant with probable cause, and, and if so, whether that style of investigation uh, met those uh, conditions. And the court decided uh, no, that it was a violation of not just the defendant's rights, but all of the 19, 18 other people whose phones happened to be in the vicinity within that hour and whose data was, was provided to the police. Now let's get some of the uh, nomenclature just real quick, just to make sure everybody's on the same page because we have a lot of internet lawyers. What does the Fourth Amendment actually do and do not say? I know we could you know, teach a whole semester or two or three or four years on the Fourth Amendment because it's one of the more contested things that's always getting tried in case law. But just basically, what does the Fourth Amendment give the average American in the average situation as far as protection from search? Great. Okay. So the Fourth Amendment promises that we all have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, and, and that um, a warrant can only be issued if uh, the police have probable cause to believe that the person that they're investigating, that they're searching, uh, was engaged in crime. So, um, so the word search and seizure for that matter, both of those words have become terms of art because they don't just mean anytime the police is observing something, you know, that we might call that colloquially a search, but it doesn't necessarily count as a search under the Fourth Amendment. So police can, you know, they can walk down the street and they can look at, they can even follow people um, and, and, you know, they can be very interested and, um, and intentional about observing a target. And if they stay in public, that's not going to count as a search. Uh, so one of the things that this case raises is whether asking for the data from Google even counts as a search at all. And if it does, then we have to ask whether it was an unreasonable search. And then if it was, then it would require a warrant. <laughs> right. So now to make sure we get the rest of the nomenclature right, the geofencing concept, which it comes under a couple different terms, though, is basically instead of having one name on a warrant, which is what people traditionally think of, you go to the judge or the magistrate or whatever, and you get, hey, this person and here's why, here's probable cause, so and so. They're saying, well, here's probable cause. We need to look at an area or a group of people or a group of devices. This is kind of a different way of looking at this, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so we know that the police will need a warrant if they, if they think, if they have a suspect and they want to go search his home, for example. Every, that's the kind of comp, uh, textbook case of when a warrant is required. You can't just walk into a home and, and look around for evidence. We also now know, thanks to a recent Supreme Court case, that police will need a warrant based on probable cause if they want to go to Google and say, hey, we think Andrew committed a crime recently. Give us the last 100 days of his geolocation records so that we can corroborate our suspicion. Um, that, in a, in a case called Carpenter, the Supreme Court decided that, um, that even, well, even though there was some other precedent that made it unclear whether they would need a warrant or not, that amount of sensitive data about who is, you know, about, about people's whereabouts um, constitutes a, a search. It's an invasion of a reasonable expectations of privacy, which is sort of how the court goes about trying to figure out whether a search has occurred or not. It was less clear, though, whether this style of, of investigation, where you're just getting a little tiny bit of location data about more people, uh, whether that would follow the same logic as the Carpenter case. 
Yeah, talking to Jane Bambauer, uh, professor of law at the University of Arizona. Uh, where this starts getting really sticky now is what you just said, this looped in, you know, almost 20 people and their devices. When you're talking about privacy, when you're talking about, you know, reasonable search, now with technology, we have this whole nother layer of it because this data, they're not going to the people for it. They're going to Google for it. And now you have things like user agreements and consent agreements, that little checkbox that everybody clicks on and never reads all the things on. That's where this gets really sticky in a hurry because now we've got multiple layers on top of the traditional warrant process, which is just the state and the individual. Now you got the state and the individual and you got this corporation over here and you've got legal boundaries that they've already signed. Where do you even start trying to wade through that swamp when you're starting to try to get a warrant for 20 people's data that they also have a consent agreement with? You, like, I don't even know how to ask the question. That's how complicated this is. Isn't that kind of the core of the problem here, though? Well, yes, yeah, sort of. If, if, if we start with an attempt to just, um, you know, take as granted everything that the court has ever said about when a warrant is needed and when it isn't, and then try to feel our ways to this case, it's going to be really hard. Um, but I, I prefer to slice through the cases in a slightly different way. So, that, so let me explain why I think that what happened in this case should be allowed, why I think the police should be allowed to ask Google for this type of data, even though they're not allowed to go to Google and say, hey, give us, give us the last you know, seven weeks of Andrew's data. Um, first of all, you know, it's worth mentioning that police have to do something to get an investigation started. So it's never a question of whether, um, of whether a, a crime is going to be investigated. The question is how. Um, and so police can, you know, of course, stand on a corner and see what 20 different people are doing. Um, they can see their public movements um, without, without initiating anything that counts as a Fourth Amendment search. What might surprise your audience is that what they can also do, with the exception of large amounts of location data, they can also go to any company with a subpoena, so not a warrant, but just a subpoena, which is basically a, a request. <laughs> and they can say, hey, give us records, any records that you have about Andrew. They can, in fact, it's actually even worse than that. Let, let me tell you about this weird puzzle where um, under the Bank Secrecy Act, banks have to, they're required to keep records on transactions. So if you have a bank account, banks are compelled to keep records and they also must respond to a subpoena. Again, not a warrant, just a request. Um, and under the Fourth Amendment, all of that can be done without triggering a Fourth Amendment search. So if we think about what police already can do and have been allowed to do based on mere hunches or whims, um, it's quite, you know, it's probably quite shocking. Um, that's one reason I think many people, including myself, applauded the Supreme Court when in the case of Carpenter, they said, no, wait a minute, you know, we, I know we had previously said that police can access records that are held by a company without it even counting as a search, but this has gone too far. Too much of our lives is now documented in these records that companies hold, like Apple, Google, any of the tech companies. So that's great. But what's what to me is profoundly disturbing about that subpoena process where you just ask, you say, you ask for Andrew's, you know, seven weeks of Andrew's transaction or location data is that it starts with a suspect and there's no 
um, that there's no duty for the police to abide by any kind of limiting factors in terms of when or how or why they would ask for any one person's records. And then they can go access very sensitive records. By contrast, this case starts with the facts of a crime. And so it is self-limiting in the sense that the police don't actually know who's going to be caught up in the geofence. It could be politicians. It could be, you know, it could be their friends. Um, it, it's not as useful as a tool for discretion. Uh, and for that reason, I think we should not treat all access to data under the same umbrella. We should think carefully about how we want police to solve crimes. Um, in fact, even in this case, the police first tracked down two leads that turned out to be wrong. In what, one of the leads was that a woman called the police department and said, my ex-boyfriend so-and-so must have committed this robbery. And, uh, you know, it's not clear from the opinion what the police did to, to figure out whether that was true, but it turned out not to be true. Uh, and so that, that was a, that's an example of an individual totally innocent who wound up getting trapped up for a, at least a little while in a police investigation. And that's terrible, but it's also just part of what happens necessarily with police investigation. Uh, another lead involved a bank employee who, who's, who knew somebody who drove the type of car that was used as the getaway vehicle or something that, that was suspected to be involved in the crime. And so it was just the right make and model and maybe color. There's no, you know, there was no other reason to think that this person was involved in the crime. And so the police had to like figure out whether that person committed the crime. So, so the fact that innocent people may wind up being implicated and that that's very stressful is unfortunate, but it doesn't make this process any different from, and actually maybe even less, it might, this process might be actually less burdensome to the innocent than the usual traditional style of investigations. Yeah, and we're going to get into that with Jane Bambauer here shortly. Uh, not only that, but this also cuts into how police investigate and some of the concerns folks about have how those investigations work, how that's going to change this. We're going to get into a little bit more of the case law background on this and how this case worked out. More with Jane Bambauer right after this as Hertel continues. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We got Jane Bambauer. She's a professor of law at the University of Arizona. She's been writing in the Washington Post about geofencing, which is just a new high tech version of an old, old debate that we will have in perpetuity over the Fourth Amendment and warrants and searches and things like this. Uh, let me ask you it this way. You had just touched on the fact that this changes how p police view suspect. I found it interesting when you wrote about it. You actually found kind of, I don't know if you'd call a silver lining in this, but in a day and age where we're very concerned about police conduct, police misconduct, uh, we talk about things like uh, police bias. You actually mentioned that if things like geofencing was properly attributed, that this could actually do a little bit better because you're doing things like de-identified data that takes some of the implicit biases out of it. Some of the things that we're very concerned socially about police work this could actually be a tool if properly used and managed and constrained by law. Big if there, but that could be a good thing in some ways because this is just raw data without some of those social things that we're so concerned about, isn't it? Exactly. The reason I write about on this topic is for, for precisely the reasons that you raise. 
I see some forms of technology driven um, police investigation as part of the police reform process. Uh, so I, I've, you know, I started in this area deeply concerned about, um, well, a few things that, that all sort of tie in here. Um, for one thing, we have a clearance rate problem where we have these really, really long sentences in part because police aren't solving enough crime. Enough crime. There's not as much likelihood of, of detection and enforcement as, as there are in other countries. And, and clearance rates actually have gone down in the last few years. So, so that's a real, so, so we have a real crime problem, a real potential overpunishment, in my opinion, it's, it's a, there's, there's an overpunishment problem. And then at the same time, we also have this, this you know, potential for expansive uh, access to, to private data. And so we might at the same time be, be suffering from privacy violations. So what I see potential in something like a geofence investigation, because the privacy invasion is there, but it's, you know, in a comparative sense, it might be minimal or less bad than other traditional forms of policing. And as you said, it's, it's, it's more constrained to the facts of a crime and therefore less likely to, to be a, a, an avenue for unintended bias or even for just harassment and you know, abusive, um, abusive of power. Yeah, I'm talking to Jane Bambauer. Uh, one of the great bottlenecks, you're talking about all the problems in the legal system. One of the great bottlenecks in the system is pretrial confinements and things like this. Is there a way that some of this data could start being used so that we're not just throwing people into the system while we're still investigating them, that sort of thing? I know that's a little beyond the scope of the geofencing we're talking about, but there are people talking about, hey, if we use technology correctly, because that's really the the dirty, sticky end of the legal system right now, where a lot of this bad stuff happens. That's where we start creating criminals instead of solving crimes. Is there Absolutely. a potential for some of this data and technology to start clearing up that end of the legal system where we can maybe have some of this data and not have to just have the whole weight of the court system dealing with every single little thing that's going on? Yes, yes. So there, there have been proposals and um, some increased use in some counties of tracking and monitoring devices in lieu of pretrial detention and also in lieu of uh, longer sentences. Uh, you know, it, it's also a good probation on the other end of the, <laughs> of, of the, um, of the process. There, it's also a good tool for probation rather than uh, incarceration. And I completely agree with you. One reason arrest is so terrible, so uh, life transforming is that is because of the incarceration that a, a, a person is, is taken away from their job, their family, um, before they've even been convicted. And, and you know, oftentimes the arrests are, are of course, um, are, are, are done without, you know, arrests are, don't lead to conviction. Um, and, uh, and then also, as if that weren't bad enough, we have a, a, a well-documented at this point problem where jail and prison has this um, ha has a criminogenic as it's as it's called effect it, it, that is it produces more crime and that's partly because people are um, no longer have the sort of support and jobs and whatnot uh, from from the pre-jail life um, and there are other likely explanations as well that you know when when you have to when you're forced to associate with with people who 
um, know how to do crime. It just you know it can lead to more crime. Um, so yeah, there have been proposals for expanded use of, of, of surveillance and monitoring in lieu of incarceration. I'm all for that. The you know, there are privacy advocates that um, see it as dangerous because what starts as a mere substitution could then be broadened and we might start using, um, you know, if arrest seems less terrible, it might happen more often and uh, so that the police can monitor people. I, I see how there can be some unintended consequences down the line, but for right now, uh, I see so much upside from making that switch that I, I, I wouldn't worry until we, you know, get there about about downsides. Now, of course, that is on the uh, suspect end of the spectrum. We've talked about some of the positives that theoretically could come out of this on the law enforcement side of the spectrum of this thing. But, uh, Professor, as you all know, that all sounds great on the board in the classroom, but we're out here in the real world. We're grown folk. We understand that human nature is undefeated, and we got a lot of data. Uh, the police are human beings, and they like to push the boundaries of their authority. How do we, you know, they're not doing real great with the warrant system as it is in a lot of cases, as we've seen too much in the news headlines lately. How do we uh, realistically constrain things like this? Uh, because because of the high tech nature of this, some of the old models of restraint just aren't going to work. Some of the old check and balances are going to have to be updated some form or fashion, I would think. How do we make sure that the good parts are getting implemented without the bad parts where they're, they can get very invasive into people's lives in a big, big hurry in this, with this technology? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, so I, I think there are a few practical limits that should be applied either by police departments themselves, and that that does happen, you know, um, um, police agencies and certainly um, the federal, you know, Department of Justice often, often actually constrains itself even more than, than law would require. But there's, but I'm also hoping that this is an area where legislation could come fill in and actually take some pressure off of the courts too, to figure out what's allowed and not allowed. The constraints that I think are important, at, at least at this stage, um, are first of all, making sure that a request of this sort is unlikely to capture way too many devices. So, you know, if there's a crime at a Justin Bieber concert, this is not the right tool, right? You're gonna have just too many cell phones in, the, in, the, in a small area. And unless there's some other, you know, unless there's some other limiting factor that can, can help um, ensure that only a, a small number, say, you know, fewer than 50 or something devices are, um, are tracked. Um, I, I have advocated for, it's not super popular, but I've advocated when, we're, when we have a new technology for limiting its use to the more serious crimes. Um, the, the thinking there is, is that we, it, it allows a sort of testing and proving ground and figuring out what, what the problems are in a context where the crime solving, if it does in, indeed turn out to be efficacious, the, the, the crime solving is most valuable to the public. Um, so, so personally, if I got to design everything, I would, I would limit its use to, um, you know, felonies that are punished at a certain level, you know, maybe not even all felonies. Um, the other thing I worry about um, is, you know, as I said before, I think one of the benefits of this style of investigation is that there's just not a lot of room for the police to exploit the tool. 
I mean, unless they're making up crimes whole cloth, um, there's, uh, you know, and as long as there's some process of confirming that a crime did occur at a certain area and the geofence is constrained enough to not wrap in too many people, uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to be as ripe for abuse. Let's talk about it this way, because we want to bring this to a practical thing. We, we understand that these things get worked out. We understand one of the frustrating things with technology moving so fast is we, we, we actually just have things downtown. It's like, oh, well, I wonder who's the first person to sue so we can get some case law on this is going to be. It's just kind of how the legal system works. What's the legislative side of this? Uh, is there there's obviously a path here where there needs to be some legislative oversight, both on the state and federal level. Uh, municipalities are probably going to have some variations on these things, depending on things. Uh, where do you see that going? Because that, too, is going to affect the case law, because, as we've seen with other things, you know, the, the motto of the Supreme Court lately has been go, go talk to Congress about it. Uh, where do you see that going and how that's going to affect the case law? Is there a push for legislation in this area or is it something that's really, really lagging? And, and we're going to probably, unfortunately, with the way legislatures work, we're going to have to have some kind of a bad news event in this area for them to get attention on it. Yeah, well, the, the only legislative activity that I'm aware of are legislatures like like New York's that are contemplating banning this process entirely. Um, so I think geofencing has wound up being kind of categorized with things like facial recognition technology as something that just has an ick factor and legislatures feel like it's more politically palatable to just go ahead and cut off uh, police use. Um, so uh, in, in, in some ways that's a little bit of a challenge because if, if what I'm suggesting sounds right, like if, if we actually want to encourage some limited use of this style of technology of um, technology-driven investigation, um, it, it's not clear who lobbies for that, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the police departments themselves, maybe, um, but on the other hand, if the police departments think that without legislation, they're basically unconstrained, then they probably won't. So, so I think, you know, that there's, there's a kind of political economy problem here that I, I am not really uh, an expert in and could not kind of forecast how this could work out. Let me comment, though, on uh, the, your, your observation that the Supreme Court has too frequently uh, hinted that they're just waiting for the legislature, whether federal or state, to, to get involved. I see that as a trend, too, and I, it's an unfortunate trend. What I see in Fourth Amendment case law, it's always been a little bit of a hodgepodge. I mean, it's just it's just very strange. Supposedly, we're looking at what reasonable expectations of privacy are, but then, you know, police can pretend to be other people and be your friends and, you know, they can do really strange things to get information, extract information out of you. And then they can't do even the slightest, you know, they, they can't, you know, even touch your doorknob or something, you know, but the case was very strange. It's starting, though, to get to the point where there isn't even a lot of grounding principles. I would love for courts in the lower levels at first and eventually sort of showcasing their thinking uh, as cases move up to the Supreme Court to, to come up to articulate the values, the core values that we're trying to preserve and how we, you know, how this legal system should, um, should, should, should balance them against the practical necessity of, of police investigations. 
And I just don't see a lot of that. Even Carpenter, the case that we were talking about um, where the Supreme Court decided you can't go get 100 days worth of geolocation data, the Supreme Court wouldn't even say how many days of geolocation data you can get without a warrant, right? So their, their decisions these days have been so narrow, they're sort of gesturing toward thinking that there's too much privacy abuse, but are not giving us firm principles to, to kind of iterate on. Uh, we're going to have to have you back on because I really want to talk about this at some point with one of our legal experts like you or one of our other friends is it's gotten to the point what we're talking about with the, the case law. We now have states specifically writing legislation to get it into the Supreme Court. I think that's a very pro or against or whatever. That, that's a really bad that, that's not a good path. We're going down with that. We'll, we'll have to have you back and talk about that in a water sense because uh, when you start having the participants in the system trying to short circuit the system, that never ends well. But that's another topic for another day. Jane Bambauer, outstanding stuff on the Fourth Amendment, geofencing, uh, technology, trying to keep up with case law. Appreciate your time today. Uh, we're going to definitely have you back. But until we get you back, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, where you're writing at. This piece we're talking about, again, was in the Washington Post. We'll link it to it in the show notes. But let folks know what you have going on until we see you again. Yeah, okay. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Jane Yakowitz. That was my maiden name. And you can always find out what I'm up to by uh, via the University of Arizona's website and my faculty profile. Thanks. It was great. Yeah, Jane Bambauer and Yakowitz. That's pretty much a law firm right there. So, you know, it could have been something. <laughs> uh jane bambauer professor of law at the university of arizona thank you so much can't wait to talk to you again yeah i think we should dig into that that's a that's something that i think not very many people are talking about but it's going to really dictate some things over the next five ten years i'm afraid you tell me if i'm wrong but i i see that train coming and i don't like how it looks i don't know about you yeah no i agree it's not a good trend yeah um, we'll talk. go ahead well i was gonna say i i think some of the state laws like i'm a like like in terms of you know abortion restriction laws and stuff like that, some some of the state laws are designed to test whether there's uh, the Supreme Court is ready to make a change of, of rule. Um, that has its own you know perverse consequences. Um, but but another problem, which I think you're right, is related, but I can't you know I haven't thought through how is this increasing narrowness of the, of, of the way that the Supreme Court drafts its opinions. So it used to be that the Supreme Court would write short opinions, like 20 to 40 pages long, and they'd have these kind of overarching value, explaining their overarching values so that lower courts could try to apply them to new facts. Now the opinions are hundreds of pages long and they just say, well, we're not gonna say much more than just that this case is decided in this way. And we haven't, you know, we reserve the right to decide a different way for almost any other case. Um, and it's, it's really an abdication of their responsibility. Yeah, the Roberts Court is gonna be a fascinating study 20, 30 years from now in a lot of ways. Uh, Jane Bambauer, thank you so much for the time today, ma'am. You were great, appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.